Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. And we thank you these mornings, Father, that you have returned us to be uh, together again. Lord, soften our hearts and make them grateful for all that you have done for us, and particularly this opportunity now to reflect on your word. Amen. Recently, I've been reading a history of the world written from the perspective of the Silk Road, that ancient trade route that connected China and East Asia via the Mediterranean with either Africa or Europe. It's a chronicle of globalism, which, as much as anything, proves the old adage, the more things change, the more they stay the same. In the Silk Road narrative, Christianity is portrayed as having emerged amidst the imperial argy-bargy of the Greco-Roman empires, Persia and China, with various marauding people groups and their gods along the way. In a marvellous sweep of relativising historicism, though, the author concluded that the success of the great various religions depended largely on their ability to deliver promise and purpose through the endless cycles of sword, famine and plague. Well, this got me thinking. During this season of plague, as the shadow of death lingers over every human contact and physical distancing threatens to reveal the emotional isolation that is the reality of our hyper-connected culture, while East and West make veiled threats of trade wars turning militaristic, and our environmental fears are turned to simmer in the cauldron of collective anxiety. Amidst all the possible reasons we have to pivot, what fundamentals are there in the Christian confession that actually provide promise and purpose for us and for our globalised world? I'm going to answer my question over the next three weeks using the lens provided by Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. The, face of the faith of the Thessalonians is laudable throughout the region of Macedonia and Achaia because, as we read in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Whether it warrants mention in historical reconstructions of the early 21st century or not, the faith that is laudable to the point of being preserved in Christian scripture consists of three simple things, turning, serving and waiting. And that's what I'll look at for the next three weeks, turning, serving and waiting. So firstly then, turning. For today, my focus is on turning. That is, as Paul commends the Thessalonians, turning to God from idols. The question of idolatry in the 21st century globalised culture, particularly one dominated by Western Romanticism, is at once fairly standard, and yet at the same time, hard to pin down. It's standard insofar as I expect we've all benefited from the work of, say, Tim Keller or John Piper when it comes to the inherent dangers of idolising marriages, mortgages and management. 
Yet it's hard to pin down because whatever we take to be idols for our particular subgroup or localised culture, the real power of an idol rests in the God it mediates. Even the least sophisticated of world religions will acknowledge that. So when Paul commends the Thessalonians for turning to God from idols, he qualifies his remarks in the next verse. They turn to the true and living God. Therefore, it's the God mediated in the ideal of matrimony, management and mortgagement. I couldn't think of an appropriate third M word. It's the God behind these three from which we need to turn to the true and living God. Who or what is this false God that empowers our idols for our generation? Well, in the last decade or so, many commentators and uh, great and good have pointed to what's now referred to as moralistic therapeutic deism, MTD, not to be confused with MTND if you're an ordination candidate. Moralistic therapeutic deism has five basic tenets. Firstly, God exists, or a God exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over the affairs of human life. Secondly, God wants us to be decent and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and as it happens by most world religions. Thirdly, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourthly, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when the need arises. And fifthly, good or decent people all go to heaven when they die. Five basic tenets of MTD. Now, it's pretty unlikely that you would ever zoom into a church that would include such a creed, save if Joel Osteen's shark-like grin was appearing on the screen. MTD is not explicitly taught, but due more to the doctrinal, doctrinally free nature of the churches, it lingers like a virus at the edge of our attempts to appear not cold or hostile in the open world. It's on the edge of our language. Instead of the true and living God, the ancient of days, we much prefer to talk about the beauty of Jesus. Instead of our willful and envious rebellion against God, we're more concerned about the world's brokenness and how that could and should be healed. Instead of the transforming grace of God at the cross of Jesus the Christ, we have the constant refrain of, yes, but what does it look like in our context? This deistic, therapeutic moralism is perfectly at home in an environment where our beliefs are enshrined in our actions. Because we all know it's more important to look at what someone does to understand what they believe. And so we have the workplace mission field that requires no sacrifice. It's the nuclear family as the core of suburban spirituality and the fear of judgment by Twitter and Instagram over the return of the king. Now, in the severe mercy of the true and living God, COVID-19 has given MTND something of a hiding in the last six months, I think you'd agree. Therefore, it seems all the more important for us to be crystal clear on what it looks like to live in the light of that mercy. And so we go back to 1 Thessalonians 1, 
9 and 10. These are the key verses of the whole book. And over the next three weeks, we'll spend time reflecting together on what God has to say through his word to this small church in ancient Greece. And for today, as I mentioned, we focus on the most basic pivot that any human creature can make in their lives on this earth, turning from idols to worship the true and living God. Now, there are three things here, I think, that uh, reveal to us what it means to turn to God from idols. And they are firstly, knowing the true and living God. Secondly, trusting in the promise that God raised Jesus from the dead. And thirdly, fleeing the coming wrath. Knowing the one true living God, trusting in the promise that God raised Jesus from the dead and fleeing from the coming wrath. Now, the Thessalonians changed their whole life and future when they started worshipping the Creator instead of the creation. You turn to God, the living and true God, says Paul. Neither the Acts story nor the rest of 1 Thessalonians tell us much of what life was like in Thessalonica. As far as we can tell, it was an important Greek city in the Roman Empire, and Paul spent a few weeks there planting a church amongst some Jews, but a lot more Greeks. From Acts 17, it seems that Paul's time in the city was cut short due to opposition from the local Jewish community. Nevertheless, preaching the gospel in this part of Macedonia made a clear impact and, in fact, made the Thessalonians almost famous throughout the whole region. In verse 7 of chapter 1, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. The one thing that Paul does mention is that the Thessalonians had been pagan idol worshippers and turned away from that to worship the true God. For the believers in Macedonia themselves report what happened when we visited you. They tell how you turned to God from idols and served the living and true God. Again, as far as we can tell, Thessalonica was an ordinary Greek city, which meant that it was filled with temples to various gods and altars for worship of local deities. But it's a fair guess to think that it was a lot like life in Athens, mentioned later in Acts 17. There, Paul makes clear that God is too big to fit in a temple, and the true and living God doesn't need anything from us, such that he might be served at an altar. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything. Or in verse 29 of Acts 17, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. The Christian gospel is a message to human beings from the true God who made and sustains all the universe. We are figments of God's imagination, not the other way around. He's not some projection of our best qualities or a comforting fail-safe for our shortcomings. The very fact that we live and move and have a way of being in the world with each other is down to the gracious provision of God who made the heavens and the earth. So far, so good, perhaps, but even the God of MTD will recognise that much. But to turn away from idol worship means abandoning the basic system of exchange that undergirds spiritual life in Thessalonica. 
We must turn away from the lie that we somehow manage our relationship with God and the rest of the world through some kind of economy of exchange. But that's what idolatry means. I give God what he wants and he gives me what I want. There's a fair exchange rate, a sacrifice here, an offering there, a libation here, and God makes sure that I'm healthy, wealthy and wise. Pagan religions that revolve around idol worship are an awful lot like our global financial system. A basic contract exists whereby you make premium payments in return for matters that are otherwise beyond your control and make sure that they turn out well for you and yours. But then COVID. The turn from idols to the true God is more than simply assessing what things in our lifestyle take attention away from God. Rather, it's a matter of turning to the God who permits or even commissions disaster in order to get our attention and turn us back towards him. Knowing the true and living God means awakening to the reality that the creator is living and active in and towards the world. He's not disinterested and distant. But that means coming to terms with the God who judges sin. As Paul told the Romans, the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. We have pandemics because God judges sin. Turning to the true and living God means accepting that God is faithful to his word, even when that faithfulness means holding a sinful world accountable and whether directly or indirectly, punishing sin. Not just your individual or my particular sins, but rather the vast pall of rebellion that hangs over our world, much like the smoke that hung over our city during the summer. Yet even as we do turn to this true and living God, we see something strange and wonderful because far from being an arbitrary tyrant, the true and living God enters into our world. He becomes a creature in his own creation and takes death, our death, personally. To turn to God from idols means to trust in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus to life to show us that he is working in the world for us. When Christians turn from idols, they turn to the God who raises the dead. As Paul says in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to await from his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. From the perspective of a culture of idolatry, turning away from idols is no small thing. To turn away from idols means turning away from the normal, everyday means of social advancement or knowing where you fit in the world and how to make sense of the events around you, whether it's regular temple visits, annual festivals or special offerings at the various stages of life. It means giving up the ordinary mechanisms by which one might establish some sense of control or order in our lives. But what do you get from the Christian gospel by way of replacement? From a purely circumstantial point of view, the evidence is not that great. 
For the Thessalonians, turning from God coincide, sorry, turning from idols coincided with a fair amount of persecution. Chapter 1, verse 6, you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering. Or chapter 2, verse 14, you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's church in Judea, who are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your fellow citizens. The same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. One of the things we do learn from Acts about life in Thessaloniki is that opposition to Christianity was so virulent that even when Paul and his friends moved on to the neighbouring town of Berea, the Jews followed them there and persecuted them there too. And yet, the promise that the Christian gospel makes to those who turn from idols is that God's power transcends all the various trials and temptations that make up life in a fallen world because God's power can overcome our greatest enemy, death. If COVID-19 has done anything for our collective consciousness, it's been to bring the reality of death, even the death of rich Westerners, right back into central daily life. We now actually talk about how many people died today. Human beings have been doing that ever since there were human beings kicked out of the garden. But we do it all the time now. We're actually just like them. We believe in the God who takes death personally, though, who defeats death personally and shows his power and his love for the life he created by raising Jesus from the dead. Or as the writer to Hebrews put it, now since the children of flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by fear of death. To turn to the true and living God is to turn from death to life. And so finally, to turn to God from idols means to flee the coming wrath. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is not only a sign that God is for us in the world, but also for a sign that he will save us from the world's end. We wait for him who comes from heaven, who was raised from the dead, in verse 10, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The Christian gospel makes quite clear a rather uncomfortable promise. The God who made the heavens and the earth will one day call us to account. Or as Paul told the uh, Athenians, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Quite unlike the God of MTD and as unpopular or distasteful as it may be, even amongst many Christians, the Bible makes it clear that God is far from indifferent about the way that human beings treat him and his world. A large part of the chaos and perversity of human culture is God's wrath against idolatry, as Paul tells us in Romans 1. Furthermore, God's patience with this kind of ignorance or even hostile indifference will not last forever. A day is surely coming when God puts an end to evil of idolatry in creation 
once and for all. And to the extent that COVID-19 is a sign of God's judgment and in the light of the coming wrath of God that will purge creation of all sin, death and evil, the gospel promises that the risen Jesus is God's saviour for those who turn from idols and worship him. Even if government restrictions and economic shutdowns flatten infection curves, even if God's spirit inspires the scientists of the world to find a vaccine, our only sure and certain hope is found in the risen Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we might be saved. The Christian gospel is a call to turn from the destruction to which idolatry is certainly headed, to reject and abandon the God of therapeutic moral deism and turn towards our Saviour, Jesus the Christ. Now, in the coming weeks, we'll reflect together on serving this, our true and living God, while we await the return of his King. In the meantime, let us pray that our lives together will be the same kind of advertisement of the truth of God, of the true and living God, that he revealed in the Church of Thessalonica. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to await his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath.